always look on the bright side of life. Always look on the light side of life. Well, hello and welcome to a very special edition of The Hopeless Show. I'm Aaron Wolf, and we have a great thing today. We have Jewel Lloyd, WNBA champion, first round pick out of Notre Dame, part of Team Mamba, Kobe's whole team of, of amazing basketball players and athletes. And she also has learning disabilities like myself. And we're going to dive into these topics together. But first, before we go to Jewel in this really in-depth interview that I think you'll find very interesting and write me about it or Jewel about it online um, on social. We'd love to hear your thoughts. So before that, we're going to cover a few topics and then get into the show. One thing that happened that was amazing is I have two cats. One is named Busy Bee after Busy Bone, the rapper. I love Bone Thugs and Harmony. And the other is named Mr. Weirdo because he's super weird. So I've trained these cats to sit on command together. So they like in unison sit. Like like how uh, in the Olympics they have like swim, what is it called? Swimming, uh, dancing? No, synchronized swimming or synchron, yeah, whatever. Synchronized ice skating, swimming. So I've synchronized catting. And I put the video up and I called myself the Cat King because I felt like, it's like the Tiger King, but the Cat King, because I could get them to sit. And the next thing I saw, <laughs> which which makes all the things that I said about the Tiger King show being, to me, a little bit overrated and not well, terribly well made. Well, I take it all back because the Tiger King, the place, like the actual place where Joe Exotic ran the thing, they put up my video of me being the cat king, having the cat sit. So you should go to my at the Aaron Wolf Twitter or Instagram or Facebook and you can see the video or it should be on theirs as well. And uh, so thank you, Tiger King Place. I don't agree with a lot of what you do, but I love that you put my video up. I feel like I'm a part of the uh, fad that is over now. So that was fun. Now I'm going to, I'm going to have a couple other topics that are, that are fun. First, I have to get into something serious because it's happening now. What happened with George Floyd, the man in Minnesota who got killed by a police officer. I have to talk about it for a second because it is a hopeless topic, but I think there's something we can get some hope out of, even though what happened to him is an atrocity. It's wrong. It's racist. It's happened too often in our country. And to be quite frank, the man who did it is a murderer. But what I want to do is just read you a couple quotes because I think it can give some perspective on where there's hope and where things are veering off in our country and continue to veer. Here's three quotes. Again, this isn't about me. This isn't about us. This is about us together. That's why we also do the Together Show Live, which you can find on Facebook, because this is about what can we do right now when bad things happen and we're quarantined. 
Heck, I'd run for office if I could. But right now, we're not even supposed to rally in groups. So here are three quotes. Here's the first one. We believe in the presumption of innocence. I also say, looking at videotape, videotape doesn't lie. And putting somebody's knee on somebody's neck is extraordinarily hurtful and dangerous from somebody's neck point. That's one quote based on the video of George Floyd. The next quote. I am horrified by George Floyd's arrest tape. This is an absolute disgrace. And then here's the third quote. The only good Democrat is a dead Democrat. And here's the fourth quote. I don't think we can move forward unless we take aggressive action to rip out the insidious race-based inequalities that corrupt every part of our society. Now, you might be wondering who said each of these quotes. That's what's interesting. The very first quote about how videotapes don't lie. Now, this is wrong. Was by Sean Hannity, Fox News pundit. Big Trump supporter, big right-wing conservative celebrity host. He said something that I agree with completely, personally. And we talk about being a part of the Logic Party which is now on Facebook and Instagram and Twitter and everything because it is so important to me that we think logically, not just based on party lines. And I believe exactly what Sean Hannity said. The next quote is by someone we've talked about a lot on this show because I've had a feud with him, a Twitter feud, and he went after me. He said many mean things about me. And his followers went after me a lot. We talked about this a lot. And we'll talk about it more he said the next thing, how he's horrified and this is a disgrace. I agree with Dan Bongino. I think he's right. I think Sean Hannity's right. The next quote about Democrats being good de dead Democrats, if they're dead, that was a retweet by Donald Trump, the president, from the, liberal, or the Federalist, which is a conservative magazine. They went on to say a lot more about, about how uh, they, they don't believe in Democrats' policies and they should be dead. But also, they said that Democrats should pick their poison when social distancing and this basically calling social distancing a hoax, saying they, they got to pick their poison. You either go before a firing squad or you end up on a rope. Now, I don't agree with that. That's not logical. And at the exact same time when Sean Hannity and Dan Bongino are talking about the injustice of this, the president at the same time is saying or retweeting that Democrats should be dead Democrats. And then it further says how they should either go by a firing squad or be at the end of a rope. That's not logical. That's not, that's not conservative. That's not, that's not liberal. That's wrong. And the fourth quote about racial inequalities being a problem in our country is Joe Biden, former vice president. I agree with him. They are wrong. So in this case, there are four people 
all on different sides of the aisle. But to me, three of them are logical. Sean Hannity, Dan Bongino, and Joe Biden. They all are welcome with their points of view on, on George Floyd and the atrocity that happened and him being murdered. They're welcome into the logic party with their points of view. Those are logical. Donald Trump talking about killing people and retweeting that while this just happened and not at all talking about the racial injustice that has happened as the leader of the free world is wrong. That's not logical. That's not left. That's not right. That's just wrong. So I think what we can get out of all of this is that the logic party and George Floyd and what his life now represented because of his tragic death is that we can stop being so tribal and actually agree on things. Same thing happened with masks, wearing masks. Sean Hannity went off on people gathering by the thousands and not wearing masks. Trump didn't. He encouraged it. Joe Biden went out and wore a mask. Trump made fun of him. These aren't logical behaviors. These are just wrong. You don't do that right now in a pandemic. So I'll end this with George Floyd. You'll be remembered. I'm glad the people on all sides of these tribal aisles that we've created are seeing that your life matters. And Godspeed, man. We're all going to keep fighting for justice. So I'll, I'll wrap up before we get to Jewel Lloyd. And Jewel and I talk a bit more about women's rights, about educational rights, and stuff like that, as well as her thrilling career in the WNBA. So the last, the last couple of things I'll talk about are just nice. One, one is I was walking the other day and I noticed redwood trees in West Hollywood. This is something that if the quarantine and the pandemic weren't happening, I wouldn't have gone on this walk. And I, they were right next to the IHOP I live by. I wouldn't have noticed them. And I thought, oh my gosh, there's redwood trees. And why are redwood trees so important to me? Well, my dad loved them. I grew up, my dad planted redwood trees in the house we grew up in. It became the biggest redwood grove in the area because there were no other redwood groves. And I didn't realize that there was a redwood grove blocks from my house. What a beautiful thing to appreciate nature at a time when, when a pandemic is happening. And I just hope that we all can appreciate the things that we otherwise may not notice right now. Because the more we appreciate those beautiful things coming in, the more we can keep moving and work together to get past this pandemic. The last thing is we talk on this show about hope fulfilled, <laughs> about, about things happening that, that are fu fulfilling our, our prophecies of hope because, as we like to say, we predict the future. Well, in this case, we literally predicted the future the next day. I talked about the end of the show, The Masked Singer, and I actually made fun of a guy, Jesse McCartney, who came in second, saying how I was disappointed that he was the, the second to last guy. I was expecting more. Well, then I was in line at a, at a place, Barney's Beanery, to get food. And I looked up 
And there was a guy in front of me and we started chatting. And I thought, wait, he was nice. How you doing? So on. And then I realized, wait, that's Jesse McCartney. That's the guy from la the night before that I had just made fun of for being like not interesting enough on on the mass singer to, to to be the runner up. And then on top of that, I realized the guy was the star of the mass singer, and he's the only one in line not wearing a mask <laughs> to pick up his food. So there's some irony there, right? So then he walked away. A couple of the girls in line were like swooning. And I was just thinking, well, he seemed nice enough. I kind of feel bad. I uh, talked a little bit of shit about him. But I also uh, I also was like, it's kind of ironic. You're on the one mask show. There's one mask show in the country. And you're on it. And you came in second. And then you're the one person not wearing a mask in line to get food at Barney's Beanery. So to Jesse McCartney, I say, cheers, dude. Maybe wear a mask next time. And sorry I made fun of you before. You seem like a nice guy, minus the fact that you may have given me coronavirus. Just kidding. I hope. So with that, here's my time with Jewel Lloyd, WNBA champion. Tell me where you grew up and what, you know, who you are and what your, the beginnings of Jewel Lloyd are. Yeah, so um, I grew up in Lincolnwood, Illinois. Um, it's a, the closest suburbs to Chicago. It's actually predominantly um, uh, white suburbs. A lot of my friends growing up uh, were Jewish and are Jewish. So I have a really close connection there. Exactly. And so it's, it's a pretty di diverse group of community. And um, it's, I have a lot of pride being from Lincolnwood. Um, it's a small city. A lot of people don't know exactly where it is, but um, you know, how our community is kind of brought together. Everyone kind of looks out for each other and, everyone's pretty much family, you know, everyone on the block and everyone looks out for one another. So it's super, um, just a really awesome, unique city. Um, and I have like a lot, a lot of pride from being from Lincolnwood. And then I went to Niles West, our, our high school there and grew up playing basketball at the parks and, um, ended up playing basketball in high school, then played at Notre Dame. And then I decided to leave, um, after my junior year to uh, go get drafted and become a professional athlete. And I got drafted and uh, number one to Seattle. And I've been there, I've been there in Seattle ever since. So that's uh, the short version of kind of like my background and where I'm at. And uh, that's a good, uh, that's a good background. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and then, so let's go back. I'm curious cause you started as a, uh, like you, your kid, you're growing up, you're having fun. What, and you, I know, you know, your mom's a huge influence on you. I can tell your family is so important to you, right? So yeah. you grew up in this close-knit family. Right. Uh, um, at what point did you see that, or did your family identify that basketball was your thing? Um, I would probably say around um, fifth or sixth grade. I grew up playing tennis, so that was like something that I was taught and learned and loved to do, and I was so dedicated to the sport of tennis. And then I had a coach who was like, oh, just come try out. And all my friends play basketball. So I started just to gravitate towards that more and more. And then when I was in fifth grade, I got asked to play on our eighth grade uh, team. Huh. And that was the first time where we we're like, okay, maybe I'm kind of good at this. And I think my parents kind of just realized at that point that I had something special. And I didn't, I, I was just playing, you know, my friends were there and it was something fun. And I think 
um, other people kind of saw the potential that I had as an athlete and kind of honed in on that. And um, we kind of just rode that wave until, um, you know, I kind of really got serious about it and, and was like, okay, this is something that I really, really want to do. And uh, by my sophomore year of high school, I, I quit uh, tennis and really focused on basketball. So I was like, okay, I think I'm, I'm good at this. I think it's something that it's more than just a hobby and uh, let's see where it takes me. And we're, was your, what were your folks like about it? Like, you know, because it's a unique uh, endeavor to take on is to be a professional athlete. That's like, I mean, look, every kid thinks about it. Yeah. But, yeah. but it's like, can I actually do it? Right. I think even with my parents, even growing up, like they would just made sure that we were just super active. I think that was like half the battle. They never forced me into any sport. It was kind of like, let, let me find out what I really like and do and they'll support me or whatever. And when I got serious about it and obviously leaving, you know, Notre Dame, no one's ever done that. It was a big, big controversy doing that and, and not finishing school and, and trying to go on and do something that I love. And I think my parents kind of trusted me in that decision and knew that I was super dedicated to the craft. And I, it was all me, you know, I wanted to push myself harder. I wanted to challenge myself and it wasn't coming from my brother or my parents or coaches. It was my, um, creativity and my passion to follow it. And regardless of what happened, I think my parents are just saying, you know, we, we trust you and we, we support you. And, you know, I was really fortunate to have parents and families that really do support me and, and whatever decision I made. And that helped a lot. And so, uh, speaking, speaking of education, um, cause it's a brave decision. You were the first to do it. It worked. You were drafted yeah. number one. So obviously like, that's what you want. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> And then things have worked out since then, um, which we'll talk about a little more. But education was a tough, like, this is where we have a very similar background. It was it was tough because we were both um, pigeon pigeonholed, I think is the right word. Like, we were put in this corner to yeah. say, like, you're not, you're underachieving. You're not trying hard enough. Right. So when, when did you start to realize that you learned differently? It, you know, I probably didn't really register in my brain um, until I kind of like actually finally physically got the diagnosis. But I remember being in second, second or third grade and we had these uh, like every week we had to go and read a book and bring it, bring it to our home and read it and bring it back and kind of give a book report. And I remember, um, you know, there was like all these books and all my friends were around like, yeah, I just read this book and it was so good and great. And I remember only getting like the picture books because then I could read it super quick and understand what's going on without reading the words. Like my comprehension skills were so advanced that I could skim through and look at the pictures, figure out what happened. And those were the only books I would be able to understand. And I would, that's basically how I would, you know, still feel cool that I could still understand what's going on because I'm reading these books. And then I realized like these picture books were like not as advanced as, you know, these people are reading chapter books. And I feel like, dang, like, why can I do this? Why can I understand the pages? And I remember grabbing a book one day that had all these words, no pictures. And I just like looked at it and was like, this, like my mind is exploding. Like, I don't know what's going on. You know, how can I go back and give a book report on this when there's nothing? And, um, you know, I remember my mom uh, helping me read the book and I was like, why is this such a challenge? And I, you know, at first I was like, oh, it's, my mom's just reading me, you know, helping me read this chapter and it's cool, I get it. But I think even then you kind of felt like, something's off, but I don't know what it is, but you know, I'm still able to understand it. So I don't, I don't know. But I think that's when I first kind of noticed that, you know, my learning curve was a little different than my friends. And did you use 
basketball and your talents that were there that were developing, obviously, the, where you were heading in that direction, did you use that to sort of hide behind school or reading being tough? Oh, for sure. I think because I was such a good athlete and I was so skilled in that aspect that because school work and reading and math were so difficult, I think people in general just looked at me as a basketball player. Like, oh, you're good because you're so athletic. You're good. Like, that's what I'm looking at. And that's why we're, we're close with you. And that's why you're excelling because your ability to, you know, go out there and, and be a good teammate and, and score these points and just have fun. Oh, you're fine in the classroom because you come back and things look great. You know, I think even I was like, oh, I'm good because, you know, I have friends and people to see me as this great, you know, funny person, makes jokes all the time. Um, and school was never kind of was always in the back burner. And um, that definitely helped me kind of just like ease my way into figuring out what, you know, my learning curve was. But yeah, for sure. And sports was my saving grace by, by far. It kept, it kept me relevant. It kept me cool. It kept you cool. Yeah. Because and also as a fellow class clown, how much did you find like, all right, when things are boring or difficult or like, I don't care in the classroom. Yeah. I know I was always like, I'm going to crack jokes left and right. Yeah, all the time. Um, I was always the person either like making beats with the pencils or like flicking and seeing how far it goes. I'm constantly making my classroom um, just a playhouse in a sense, finding different ways to keep people laughing. And um, yeah, I was always that person all the time where I was, you know, getting yelled at for talking too much, getting sent outside. And to me, that was just like, it was great. You know, it was great to kind of feel like I was still involved in the classroom that way, not knowing that it was a diversion to, you know, how I was struggling. And and so then what, what did your, because I know you're about your mom's impact on you. How did she get you to say, to feel like I got to focus, like it's time to try school differently and get help for maybe some dis differences, learning differences, disabilities that I hate the word disability, but learning. Yeah. How did they, how did she do it? Oh, you know, I think it was a process for my mom as well, because she's, you know, she's been in education for a long time. My aunts are all teachers and professors. And I think when she, you know, coming home, doing my homework and every day she would see me that I was not as focused as I was doing other things. And it was taking me super long to finish things that she knew that I knew. And I think she kind of just watched me and started to see, you know, what things worked and what things didn't work. I know she invested in a lot of tutors, you know, she didn't, you know, she didn't know, you know, exactly the specifics of things, but she gave me tutors, she gave me speech therapy, she gave me reading things. And at one point she's like, okay, all these top notch people are coming to my house and I see no improvement. Let me see if I can do it. And so she invested time in just first watching me, how I learned and watching how I spoke and read. And then she was like, okay, like there's something else beyond this, because if I'm reading it to her, she understands it completely, gets it, can write on this. But if she starts reading it, there's a disconnect. So my mom started to kind of put the puzzle together and realize that, okay, there's something there and I need to find a way to, so my daughter can be successful and not just, you know, for now, but for like the long run. So that's kind of how it started. And that's how she kind of invested in me and took a lot of time from her day. And from, you know, after she was done teaching her, you know, her, her kids at her school, she would come home and basically do the same thing with me for another oh, wow. you know, five, six hours. So uh, yeah, she definitely dedicated a lot of time to, to my learning. I'm guessing you've had, times I've asked this to a number of a lot of people and I say like have you ever been told no you can't or no you're not gonna be able to achieve something and how is that do you remember one time in, in particular that like yeah stands um, yeah there's so many there's so many examples unfortunately <laughs> but you know it's like you constantly hear that I pretty much heard it 
every year in school from a teacher or administrator that literally from, you know, second grade to college every year, there was a teacher who kind of had that inference of saying, no, you're not going to make it. And I remember very, um, I've been going into high school and there was a, um, a school that I, you had to test in to get in. And uh, I was debating on going to my uh, neighborhood high school or to a private school. And I remember this eighth grade teacher, she came up to me and she's like, oh, I heard you're, you're going to take the test for uh, Loyola. I was like, yeah, like, I, you know, I'm going to take, she's like, yeah, you're not going to get in. There's no way that you're ever going to pa pass that test. And then she like walked away. And I was like, the only thing she said, and I was like, really? Like, you know, like, you couldn't have been like, oh, like, you know, I wish you luck or, you know, oh, anything else. But it was like, no, like, you're not going to get in. Like, and just walked away kind of like laughing. I'm like, that could have like totally changed. You know, it's like those little words or phrases can really have a big impact on like your development and growth. And like, you're already nervous about taking the test. Or you're already nervous about something that you're really excited for. And then you have a teacher, a mentor who's supposed to help the next generation telling you that you're not good enough. It was like, wow, like, that's great you know yeah as you were saying you decided all right i'm gonna take this big step and go from high school to college to a big like you were gonna get dressed go into the to i don't you have to declare right so yeah, did you yeah. have a bunch of schools talking to you like how did that process go about yeah it's a pretty chaotic process um you know college coaches can call you they could do like home visits they i had college coaches where they would drive up to my school and then I had no idea that they were there and I would come out of class and I'll see like the college coaches standing there and they couldn't physically talk to me, but they could just observe. So you're kind of like walking around and they're like behind you, they're watching you and they're watching with your peers and it's kind of weird and awkward. Cause like, what do I do? Um, but yeah, there's a lot of letters that get sent to the house and um, it's, you know, a lot of people are just trying to get to know you, trying to pull you, persuade you to come to their schools and you got to kind of make a decision. And honestly, I have no real, um, tides or reasons why I really went to Notre Dame. Like my parents, none of us really knew anything about Notre Dame. We didn't really know much about the school in a sense. Um, we knew obviously like academically super high and they were really good the past couple of years in basketball when I was getting, getting um, recruited. And, um, you know, we didn't know too much about the school in a sense. We didn't have any, like I said, we had no, no ties. My dad actually grew up not liking Notre Dame football. He's a big, you know, he was a big uh, Michigan State fan at the time. <laughs> So it's like we didn't really have a connection, but for whatever reason, everything kind of led to Notre Dame, whether um, we moved to the house, like a new house, and it had like all this Irish things in there. And we're like, is this a sign? And like everything kind of pointed to Notre Dame. And so um, after long talks and, you know, with my family and friends, it kind of was like, all right, well, um, everything that I kind of asked for and looked for, um, you know, I think kind of matched up there. And I also kind of wanted to prove to myself that I could go to a very high academic school and succeed. You know, I think for me, it was like so long, you know, people said I couldn't do it. I couldn't do it. And, you know, I couldn't be successful academically. Like, I think I need to prove to myself that I can. And, um, you know, that's a little bit why also that I wanted to go there. And how much were you nervous about that? Like going to a highly, you know, acclaimed academic school like Notre Dame, uh, you obviously are basically working two jobs because you <laughs> yeah. have your basketball job and your uh, and your academic job, yeah. plus any social life you can squeeze in there. Right, right. How were you nervous about like how are you going to deal with a school where there is no not a lot of individualized attention? Yeah, it was it was definitely a struggle. Um, 
I think I realized that like the first two weeks of like summer school and I was like, wow, this is going to be a challenge. Like I'm, you know, two weeks in and I have no idea how I'm going to make it <laughs> like the next, you know, four, three years. Like I just don't know. And, um, you know, yes, they had resources, but it was also new for them too to have someone with my 504 plan and kind of, you know, talk to the professors and see which professors actually wanted to work with my 504 plan. There was a lot of professors I couldn't get in their classes because they didn't want to help me, you know? So it was, you know, I, I faced a lot of adversity on the academic side at Notre Dame because it was different, you know, it was new for them. It was a new thing that they had, teachers had to learn how to teach me, you know, and that's not always the case when you go to college. It's like, oh, here's the thing, like you're on your own, come back and turn it in, you're good. So. It definitely was a struggle, um, but like I said, without my my mom and my aunts, who kind of helped me, um, you know, I don't think I would have been as successful at the school at, at all. So it was good to have a nice core from behind to help me, um, you know, progress. And did you talk talk to your teammates at all about your learning differences or struggles or no? I mean, I did every once in a while, but it was something serious. You know, it, it's different. You know, everyone's kind of going through their thing, and I'm so um, you know close knit to my family and friends back home and. You know, people who like know me and all my struggles and I felt like going to Notre Dame and stuff like I kind of had like the three big things that you know that are different you know I was a black athlete which is you know they're not it's not super diverse in Notre Dame so I was an, a black student I was an athlete and teachers in general don't want to work with athletes because they know they're never going to be there or they think it's just going to be you know this kid's not going to be here and whatever like I don't you know and then I had a learning disability so I had like three things like huh. three strikes that was just like bam 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 and you know, I never felt like I was fully connected um, to really much of a lot of people just because, like, it was different. A lot of, not a lot of people have what I have. You know, it wasn't, you know, a group that's, hey, like, we're dyslexic, we're here, we have learning disabilities, let's come together. It was like, you know, it was different. So um, people hid their learning disabilities, and, you know, I didn't want to add another issue, another problem to the table, you know. And so I kind of just kept a lot of things to myself and kind of just moved, you know, and, and kind of went with the flow, and, and, you know, I was able to kind of just – um, maneuver in my own way and figure out ways that worked and um, yeah. And how did that feel? Cause like, as you, you know, you're, you guys were all a great team. Yeah. You went to final fours, you like were winning and winning and winning, but you said there's still 10% of you that wasn't there even when you're on the national stage. Yeah. Like for, for example, I remember um, I got a call from our, um, our basketball operations person is like, hey, like, you know, it's in the year, biggies, freshman of the year, you gotta go receive this award, you coach and whatever, have to fly to go get the, uh, the uh, award, um, you know? So it's a big thing, you know, I'm winning freshman of the year, like, it's great, awesome. So like 20 minutes before that encountering, there was a teacher who texted me and said, hey, like, there's a problem with your paper, needs to talk to you. And I was like, okay, so then, um, I'm going to to meet with her and it's like this like this room at like a top floor I go in and it's literally like one light and like everything's dark and she's sitting on the other end of the table and I'm like this is so weird she's it's like a like, detective show it's like you're you're being I, accused I of murder yeah I was like what's going on and she has like my paper and a pen she's like you didn't write this paper you know I think you cheated uh, you know you didn't put your thing in the bio and all these things and she's accusing me of not writing my paper really and, Yes. And she slides the paper over. She's like, here at Notre Dame, you know, you have the two strike rule that if you cheat, you know, you either get a zero in my class or you get a strike and potentially get kicked out of Notre Dame, yada, yada. And I'm just like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Like, what's the evidence that I didn't write the paper? Like, I gave you all my assignments. I went to the resource center. Like, 
you know, all these things. And she's like, sign the paper. It's better all for you if you just sign the paper and get a zero and fail my class. And this is right before like the biggest thing of my life as a freshman, you know, getting an award. So I'm battling this teacher who's trying to get me a zero and fail her class. And then I'm getting literally 20 minutes later, hey, you just got freshman year. I need you to go collect this trophy. So like that was a disconnect. It's like things are so great that everyone saw the, the awards and the winning. But then I'm also dealing with people and teachers who are trying to get me kicked out and expelled in Notre Dame. So it's like every day there was something that was like, this is great, but this is not. This is great. Oh, man. Like, wow. I was like, this is crazy. And I remember calling my mom and like, what am I going to do? Like, she's trying to get me kicked out. Like, I got to go catch this plane. Like, I can't deal with this right now. I'm literally about to get on a plane. And it was like the teacher thought I was lying, trying to cover it up because I wasn't able to meet with her longer. It's like, no, I have to go get this award, but you're yelling at me. So it's like constant back and forth. So how did you, well, wait, well, first I got to ask, did you write the paper? I wrote the paper. So and I, how did yeah. how did you convince her that, yes, you did write a good paper? We had to go to, like, there's like this court system at Notre Dame, and I had <laughs> to, like, plead my case and show all the evidence and show this and get voted on if I wrote the paper or not. And there was a lot of other things that the seizure was doing beyond the year. And it was like, I had to spend another, one of, one of my free Saturday or Friday nights in court, basically discussing if I wrote this dang paper. And it was just like, why would I lie? But you know, it's like, I have done everything. I've shown up to class. I'm not a problem. Like I've done everything you asked me to do. And you're saying I didn't write this paper because I missed a parentheses in a bio. Like it was like a simple thing. Like I didn't put a semicolon in this thing. And she made an uproar about it. And it was, it was amazing to go through that. And um, yeah, I mean, if you ask my mom, she she remembers I had to call my mom. I had to get, it was a whole deal. You must have been in tears. Like, how can and, you? Oh, I was so frustrated because it's like I've put so much work and effort into trying to be successful. And then you have teachers who uh, don't believe in you, don't want to see you succeed and constantly trying to, you know, kind of knock you down instead of being like, you know, hey, like, how, how can I help you? You know, and he never said that. It was always just like, I'm going to find ways to, you know, kind of make your life miserable. And it was it was, a, it was one of those semesters where it's just like, I just need this to kind of end. And did you realize when you got drafted number one that it's really a 12-month job? Because a lot of people I don't think realize that being in the WNBA doesn't mean you're just in the WNBA. Yeah, you know I mean? yeah. You can explain better than I, but. No, you're exactly right. I think I, I had a um, knowledge of it because my brother, he played overseas for like four years. And so he kind of knew. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, so he played basketball. He was all over. He was in New Zealand, Poland, uh, Romania. So he kind of played all over. So he kind of knew. So I kind of knew, like, if you know, you don't play in the league, you play overseas. And that's for, for most women, that's when you make a lot of your money is overseas. They pay you so much better than they do in the league. And so um, I think you know that, but I don't think you understand the, you know, the gravity, the gravity of it because you're just like, oh, yeah, we play overseas. Cool. You hear about players going overseas and then you don't realize, you know, how much – that really means or what that means. And so um, the season in the W starts in like May, finishes in like September. And then you have like seven days to pack up all your stuff and head overseas. <laughs> and so then you go overseas. And then by the time you get there overseas, you're probably already missing four or three, three games. And then you have to play that week you get there. So there is no, you know, time off and you're constantly going. And you know, I don't think I understood that until my first year of like, whoa, I'm not getting Christmas. I'm missing birthday parties. I don't get a break. Like, yeah, it's cool. I'm making a lot of money, but like, I'm so far from like being with my friends and I'm so close to my family and friends. And it was like, 
a real, you know, gut shot. It's like, wow, I, I don't, I won't see them till next summer. And then by the time I'm done overseas, you get done in May, which, you know, the season W season starts in May. So you only have like two or three days <laughs> to see your family. And then you go to season. So it's like, that's a constant circle that you go on. And I've been doing that for five years now. People have been doing that for 10 years because it hasn't changed. And uh, it's a, it's a truly a grind. And the league is, is trying to do things differently with our new CBA and things like that to change it. So people don't have to go overseas and that's, you know, one step in the really good direction, but it's, that's the lifestyle of a WNBA player. You don't get any breaks. You're constantly going um, every month, every year. And I, th- I think it's interesting too, when you said playing overseas had a different angle because, and we're going through this quarantine right now, and you have, I think you, you said you felt like you were in a quarantine overseas a lot of the times because you don't know anyone, you don't speak the language. Yeah. So is it is that what you feel like a lot of times when you're in whatever country it may be? Yeah, you know, I, I've been, you know, in Turkey, I've been in China, I've been in Korea, um, Spain, and I think overall, when you go overseas, a lot of times, you know, when I was in China, I was the only American. So who else am I talking to? You know, it's like, besides myself, and I'm not talking to a lot of people, I'm not able to go anywhere, everywhere, whenever I want. It's, it's a different structure. So a lot of times you are by yourself. And yeah, there's a lot of times where you go to dinner with your teammates and, you know, you have that, those nights where you're hanging out. And um, but overall, like you're sitting in your apartment watching TV alone, you know, the time difference is different. So you're, you're kind of in isolation all the time and you kind of get used to that. It's almost when you come back to the States, you almost have to get readjusted to being around people because you've been <laughs> isolated for so long. So now being the quarantine, it's like, I don't necessarily feel out of place because this is like my lifestyle all the time. Like I'm almost in quarantine more than I am, you know, back in, you know, in civilization because I'm overseas all the time. So um, yeah, it's definitely different, but it's, you know, you kind of, take this time of isolation and figure out who you are and you're able to think a lot. You're able to meditate a lot. You're you're thinking of things and ways to kind of improve yourself. But yeah, you have your days where you're just like, what is life? You know, like, what am I doing? Uh, Yeah, exactly. Like can I get somebody like Siri talk to me? Um, Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. That's your best friend. Exactly. So you definitely have your days, but it's, it's, you know, it becomes almost like a lifestyle in a sense and you kind of have to embrace it because that's what we're paid to do. And it led to uh, something called winning the championship. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so last year, what did that feel like? I mean, you, you've gone from the seventh grader who was kicked out of class all the time to winning the championship. Um, was it? Was that another surreal moment? Was it like, did you expect it? Did you feel like, because you're 100%, we're going to do this? Yeah, you know, I think what's really cool about our journey to winning a championship is like our team, you know, a couple of years when I got into the league, we were really bad. Um, you know, we, we had talent, but we could never just get over the hump. We needed more, we needed something, right? And finally, we, we had a team that we were really together and we all had different journeys, different stories. And um, the thing that made us come together was like we just really loved the game of basketball. We wanted to compete. We wanted to win a championship. And we never really um focused on our wins we never really focused on our positioning and we got to a point where you know we knew we were in good standing then someone's like oh yeah you guys are number one and we're like what like yeah you know you guys are number one in the rankings and we're like since when you know we never really (laughs) we were so involved in just being there like focusing on day by day game by game and 
that sounds super cliche, but like that's literally what we did. We just enjoyed each moment that we had with each other. And winning that championship was just like, this is amazing. And I always believed that I had the capability to be on a team and the ability to be a part of a championship team and never knew when that was going to happen. Right. But, um, you know, winning and, and sharing that moment with players who've been in the trenches together and seeing everything kind of come uh, full circle was truly amazing. It's something that we definitely want to do again. And, um, you know, it's something that for me, it was like, you know, having so many people tell you no. And it was more just like, I look at my story, look at my journey. Like it didn't happen on, on your time. It didn't happen and even on my time. You know, it happened right when it's supposed to happen. And it was a great feeling of just kind of like, I can take a breath, you know, I, I, I did it, you know, and, and now it's like, how can I relive that and do that again and again? And, uh, and then I know, well, one, how did it feel I mean, in the city of Seattle and the state of Washington, you guys were here champs, heroes. Did it feel yeah. amazing to have that, you know, you come home after you win and the hero welcome and the, and as you said, you've been told no so many times in your life. Yeah. And now you win a championship and it's like, yes. To the yeah, city, you know, for our, the city. Our city, first off, is a, it's a sports city. I think anyone mm -hmm. who's, who's come to Seattle or knows anything about Seattle sports, they know that their fans are super dedicated and loyal to, to the sports. So our fans are the best. I mean, they're, they're called the Storm Crazies, and they are amazing. And they support us through every season, every game. They know us when we walk outside, you know, we go to certain restaurants. They, they acknowledge us. They respect us. And so – coming back and sharing that moment with the city was uh, truly amazing and able to go to the Space Needle and, and raise our flag on the Space Needle. Oh, cool. um, it was truly amazing just to see that, you know, it was a truly a, a city effort. You know, everyone supported us and had our bags and was there. And um, it was amazing to just ride around the trolleys, holding the championship, listening to music and, and seeing everyone who's, you see, you know, in the stands, it was, it was really cool. And, and then that led to, I believe, there was something that was going to happen this summer. Mm, yeah. But but isn't happening this summer. Yeah. Um I'm curious what cuz one of the things we talk about is it's um and it's the you know bringing hope to all things hopeless. Yeah. And I'm guessing there was some excitement about what was to, what was to happen this summer mm -hmm. and now is being moved. Yeah. You were a part you know, of. Right right. I think um you know, the next thing beyond winning a championship is trying to win a gold medal, trying to be an Olympian, trying to um, see what that is and embark on that mission. And obviously so many people are devastated that it's not happening this year. We were looking forward to that and kind of the momentum going into that. And um, you know, there's some, those momentum around, around women in sports. I think that was also leading up to the Olympics and seeing what, you know, the USA basketball team was going to do. And um, yeah, having that move to something that's just like, oh, dang it, you know, I, I worked so hard. And, you know, you can always, you know, be down on yourself but I think in general you know everything's supposed to happen for a reason and it is what it is and um you know my goal is to try to make that team and be on that team and, and take that journey and um you know see that from a different light and and hopefully you know things get better for 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 us in, in the world and um we, I'm excited for that for that um for that journey and and uh so do you have to go through the whole process again like to to try to be on the team and everything yeah, I think they're going to have, I mean, they usually have a pool of, of athletes that they use. And, you know, you go to a couple camps. Like this year we have uh, three different camps that we had to qualify for and play in. And kind of they want to make sure everyone's staying active and still, you know, able to do their jobs and kind of pick the teams like that. So I'm not sure how they're going to go about it because I know that they were 
Um, they had their ways and their committees that picked teams, but I know there's going to be probably another camp to get everyone back together again and figure out what's best for their for Team USA. And um, yeah, every time you're with them, it's always a great experience. It's it's a humbling experience, and you definitely leave motivated and focused. So I'm sure the the committees and um, Carol will figure out a way to to make things really uh, perfected and and good. And then it'll lead to hope for everyone because man, the yeah. Olympics to be back would be because. Cause you know, right now we're living in this time that there's a takeaway that I've had. And we, we talked about a bit from about education yeah. where the, now that everyone is having to, to learn at home, mm-hmm. all kids are having to learn at home. Parents are seeing firsthand how their kids learn and showing that individualized education, like your mom gave you, like my folks gave me, it's, it, it makes us succeed. If you don't have that, you can just run off the deep end and who knows you end up on the streets. You, bad things can happen yeah um so that's a a positive takeaway i think from this but is and is there one what do you think of that yeah i think um you know seeing you know a lot of my friends are you know who are trying to even my best friend he's trying to help his his uh, little brother and sister in school he's like wow i did not know this what it meant to be a teacher this is what it meant to to deal with my brother who's now i see like he you know he's he learns like this or he does this. And I think for a lot of pa- parents in general, you're, you you kind of get firsthand of uh, what it's like to really be an educator. You know, the time invested, it's not just showing up for work and handing out papers. It's investing in the kid and, and showing the kid the, the belief and, um, you know, knowing that, you know, the kid can trust you to help, help yeah. them succeed. You know, I think that's a big deal. It's not just, you know, Oh yeah, here's today's lesson guys. If you have any questions, let me know. It's like, no, I'm coming up to each kid and, and seeing like the development, seeing the growth, seeing, you know, how they are learning. And you're, you know, you're as a parent sitting there and seeing your kid learn, you're also, you know, getting closer with them as a relationship because now you're learning with them and on a different level, like literally on a different level. And you get to see firsthand and you're able to really see the growth and, and the excitement or the struggles that your kid could be facing with, um, you know, when they go back to school or when they're in school, you know, stuff that you didn't know before um, that you're now kind of, realizing now and you know hopefully that's changing the way that you kind of approach um school and learning and do you hope i mean what we both are working on is do do you hope that people emerge from this from the coronavirus the quarantine all this stuff and the education system can shift a bit because of it yeah i think you know this the one thing is that there's so many different um now there's so many different ways to learn and there's a lot of different apps and teaching formats and things that you can see that really work for kids and how they learn. And I think, um, you know, when you're finding out ways that work for each kid, this is one way you can see that every kid doesn't learn the same. Every kid doesn't, you know, take in information the same. And, you know, maybe a kid now is really excelling because they're able to rewatch a message over and over again. They're able to have, you know, notes in front of them, day-to-day notes that's really helping them succeed and, and stay on task. So I think this does for sure change the way that education is, is kind of taught. And I hope that we can learn that, you know, if a kid needs to have take home notes from a teacher to help them succeed, then that's, that's okay. Like I want as a, you know, you want your kids to succeed. You know, I think my mom, she wanted me to succeed. So she wanted to do anything she could to make sure that I was successful. And I think a lot of teachers, they need to understand that too. Like if you want to be, um, you know, not just successful for you, but help the next generation of kids and, and learners, like you have to evolve with the times you have to evolve with how kids are learning, understanding information. And this is definitely one way um, quarantine has kind of brought that to light. And a big shout out to Gwen. 
Yeah, yeah, the mom. yeah. Yeah, Gwen, yeah. She's 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 the next person for sure that will love to talk to you. And she's, you know, you you met her. She's she's uh, you know, um, the brains behind everything, and she's incredible. And the things I have paid more patience with her because I know that I was a lot to handle <laughs> and stuff. So, uh, yeah, she deserves a golden star. Yeah, and maybe uh, and she's see, I mean, she's been your number one fan or one of your number one, your number one supporter your whole life. Yeah, yeah. And that's what my parents too. So it's like, uh, um, that's the beautiful part. And I know you also, another person that was a mentor to you who tragically died was uh, was Kobe, who yeah. I had the pleasure of of working with and interviewing a number of times. And uh, and he was also dyslexic, which is, yeah. uh, a lot of people don't know. I mean, I talked to him about that a little bit. I know you did. Mm-hmm. Um, what did what did he, when, when did you meet him and what did he mean to you? Um, especially in that, that similarity you shared and we all shared together. Right. Yeah. I, 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 in person, I first met him, um, in like 2004, maybe 14, maybe, um, I was at a game and, uh, he actually brought me back into the locker room mid game and halftime. And we talked and my dad was with me and, um, he had this ability to make you feel like you were. Um, super, super important that like you were the all-star, that you were the champion, that you were um, someone of relevance. And it wasn't about him. It wasn't about, you know, I'm Kobe Bryant. Like, I can't talk to you. He immediately embraced my dad and I with a hug. And it felt like we knew each other for so many years. And that was the first time we met. And the first thing he says is just like, you know, if you ever need anything, here's my personal number, reach out. Like, I want to see you succeed. Like, I want to see you do great things. Um, and that was like the first thing. That's how we even got talking. Was like that was like his first sentence out of his mouth, and that was just so humbling to know that, you know, Kobe's first of all taking the time, um, you know, during a game uh, to hmm. talk to me and take the time to meet my parents and meet my mom, meet my dad, and then um, extend his resources to me. You know, I thought that was amazing. And Kobe is such a mentor. He and I, you know, I was able to see not just the basketball side of him, which everyone only saw, but the father, the husband, um, you know, the dad side of him as well. And that was my more mind blowing than, than the basketball side because he was such a um, good hearted man. You know, he wanted to see change for, for women in sports. He wanted to, to really invest that side. And, um, you know, he's he's been uh, a huge impact on my life and how I see the game, how I see the world, how I can, you know, um, pretty much like get into my other side of, who I am and figure out, you know, I have a creative side and I have to figure out how to let that out. And I have a voice, I have a purpose. And he was allowing me to kind of unravel that every year that we, we grew together. And um, yeah, he's uh, he's definitely truly missed. And he's, you know, I think his impact, that's not just on me, but on the world is, is definitely monumental. And I hope it keeps growing, especially with women empowerment, with what he was doing with, um, with his daughters and female athletes and also comes to light more about how he also struggled in school. Yeah. And he had to learn all these languages growing up because right, right. he would live in different places. Yeah. And uh, and some of the stuff that I talked to him about too, that was just like the the human, the human aspect of him yeah. and what he was he was going for was was really special. Yeah. And it sounds sure. like he really he made a difference in your life, which is yeah, what more can you ask out of a friend or a mentor? Right, right, right. To create forever. <clears throat> and so I guess the a, a thing I'm just curious about because in in what we're going with now with the quarantine is there one thing that you just feel a little like we talk about like hopeless about where you're like just bummed out about it or you feel 
I, w- I want to find hope, Aaron. Like, what, what is the hope I can find in something that I'm just feeling hopeless about right now? And I know we're both positive people. But. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I, I think just, you know, I think, you know, with everything going on and as much as we're trying to keep social distancing and you're being apart, I think sometimes you can kind of um, get in your head and feel like you're not doing enough because you're able to look online and you see everyone's doing like charity work and you see everyone's working on their bodies and you see everything you're like, well, am I not doing enough? Like, am I not good enough now? Cause like I have so much time on my hands. I feel like I'm not, you know, giving everything I got. And I think um, that could start to be draining on people and you can start seeing people like, Oh yeah, you know, I wish I could just do more. And it's like, no, like you're right where you're supposed to be. You know, it's easy to compare yourself to a lot of things, especially now since all we have really is technology and Instagram and social media. That's like, you consume yourself all the time and you compare yourself so much more than you did before because you didn't have time to do that. But now, you know, with, with kids, you know, struggling with, you know, disconfidence and things like that, it's like, I, I just hope that, you know, people aren't um, getting down on themselves too much, you know, like giving themselves grace, you know, there's a lot of things that you can always be positive for. And sometimes with, you know, as much as we're able to be around our family, be around, you know, people who we care about, you also kind of get lost in, comparisons and I don't want people to ever feel like they're not good enough because you know social media tells you so and uh I guess like the last thing is what would you say to people because one of the things I'm also talking about a lot is being together how can we be together when right now we can't be human like our human contact doesn't exist in the same way right so what would you say about this like let's how can we be together right now and how come while we're not yeah I think in general um, the best way to kind of grow as humans is to be vulnerable and to, to be open and find ways to communicate with people. At the end of the day, people need people, no matter, um, you know, where you are in life, you, you're going to need a person, um, you know, and I know everything's, you know, virtual right now and you can't physically get a hug, physically get a high five, whatever it is, but, um, to be vulnerable and just actually say like, man, I, I could use a hug, man, I, I need help or I need a person to talk to. Um, you know, I think that's so powerful because when you're vulnerable, you're able to connect with people on a different level and that growth will, you know, propel your friendship, will propel your relationship, whatever it is, because you've been so open. And so when things get back to normal, you know, then that's the disconnect. It won't be there, you know, because you've been so open and, you know, your struggles or your life or your storytelling and it, it allows others like someone else to, to share their story as well. That's when you just said the word it's okay to be vulnerable. That's where I think the logic party is yeah. like that. It should be called also like where you always say all love, all logic and yeah. be vulnerable yeah. because right now it's not about, I mean, I'm curious what you think about this. Cause it's not about, Oh, I'm right. And I'm, I have this political stance or I'm right. And I have this stance. It's right. like, it's also okay to be wrong. Yeah. Yeah. That's logic. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, you could be, you could be right, but so wrong, you know, and, and so, <laughs> you know, it's like, how does that make sense? Like, no, it's like the way it, not everyone's right. You know, not everyone has an opinion. I think, you know, in general, it's like, you know, you want to understand people. Like, that's the thing when you get into arguments, it's like a lot of time you're arguing about the same thing, but you're just not hearing them. You know, you got to take a second and listen and just understand like where they're coming from. And that's, you know, a lot of things that can happen for us, you know, in general as a community and as, you know, as, as humans, it's just taking the time to sit down and just listen and just really hear what the person's saying. That could change a lot of things. And that's how we can make this world a better place. Right. Exactly. Amen. Yeah. <laughs> 
Awesome. This was great. This is awesome, man. Like, thank you for even allowing me to do this with you. It's really cool. Always look on the bright side of life. Always look on the bright side of life. I told him. I'll sit to him. Bernie, I'll sit there. I'll never make that money back. Always